Last week we began to look at Romans chapter 8. We said this chapter is addressed to Christians, to men and women who have put their trust in Jesus' work on the cross. Romans 8 describes our new life in Christ. And the opening verses which we looked at last week told us three truths about our new life. First, there's a banner over our lives. And that banner reads, no condemnation. We're not just delivered from God's wrath, we are welcome in his kingdom. God doesn't just tolerate us, he delights in us. And then Paul told us about the power in our lives, God the Holy Spirit. Christians are men and women who have been supernaturalized. We're not alone in our struggles and temptations. God is with us. He provides us with the fuel to obey him. And finally, last week, Paul told us that as Christians, we are called to a fight. With that God-given banner flying over our heads, and with that God-given power in us, We are to put to death the misdeeds of the body. We're to put sin to the sword in our lives. Now those who first heard this letter from Paul didn't take a week's break between hearing the opening verses of chapter 8 and hearing the rest of the chapter. What we heard last week was followed in the next breath by what we're coming to this week. We need to bear that in mind as we turn again to Romans 8. And if you haven't found it, it's on page 1135 or in the large print 1755. And we're going to read verses 14 to 17 of chapter 8. Having told us that by the Spirit who's with us, we are to put to death the misdeeds of the body, Paul now says... For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children... Then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is God's word. If we thought the chapter 8 had opened with good news, now we find out it gets better. Not only are we uncondemned, and supernaturalized in Christ, we are also, Paul says, children of God. We come to God not just as welcome guests, we come as sons and daughters. If it's life-changing to know that you're free from God's condemnation, it's equally life-changing to know you are a dearly loved child. And Paul shows us three aspects of this truth. Children of God are led by the Spirit, adopted by the Father, and co-heirs with the Son. 
First of all, in verse 14, children of God are led by the Spirit. That's a characteristic of God's children. But what does it mean? What's involved in being led by the Spirit? Well, when we hear that phrase, we might start thinking about guidance. So questions like, what career should we aim for? Who should we marry? Should we accept this job offer or that one? Should we move over there or should we stay put here? But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Look back for a moment to verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So then when Paul speaks immediately after those words about being led by the Spirit, we know that he means led towards obedience and away from disobedience, away from sin and towards holiness. God is a holy God and the Holy Spirit leads God's children to be more like their father. So being led by the Spirit does not mean I get up in the morning with no plans because I'm going to be led by the Spirit. It does not mean I get into the pulpit with no idea about what I'm going to say because I'm going to be led by the Spirit. No, it means this. I know that I'm called to a life of obedience and holiness. And the Spirit is here to point out my sins to me to convict me about my careless words or my laziness or my prejudice. The Spirit is here in my life to put his finger on my sin and lead me towards a more God-glorifying life. So don't get up in the morning thinking, I wonder what shirt the Spirit is going to lead me to wear today. Instead, open your Bible And see how the Spirit leads you to greater maturity and greater holiness. And notice the text does does say, led by the Spirit. It does not say dragged or driven by the Spirit. The Bible compares the Holy Spirit to a dove. He leads gently. And when his leading comes, we have to respond. We have to trust that our sin really is not going to satisfy us. We have to turn from that sin and follow our divine guide towards our satisfying God. Maybe you are becoming aware of some sin in your life. Some pattern of life that doesn't glorify God. Maybe you realize that actually your heart is cold towards God. Maybe you realize you've slowly been drifting away from him. That's the Spirit's leading in your life. So don't wait for him to come violently and turn everything upside down. Don't wait for him to make you holy overnight. The Holy Spirit is not like a stick of dynamite. He's like a dove. We have to follow his leading day by day. 
And we are most likely to sense his leading as we spend time listening to God's word, both privately and here with our brothers and sisters. Well, having called us children of God in verse 14, literally sons of God, now Paul is going to focus on how we got to be children. In verses 15 and 16, we learn that children of God are adopted by the Father. Verse 15 says, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Literally, it reads, You did not receive a spirit of slavery again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption to sonship. You may remember that earlier in this letter, Paul called Christians slaves to righteousness. And there his point was, we all serve something. So make sure you're serving righteousness instead of serving sin. But here his point is quite different. He's showing us the contrast between living with the mindset of a slave and living with the mindset of a son. Slaves live in fear. Their situation is completely insecure. But sons live with confidence. They know that they are secure. Now the Bible does call us to live in the fear of the Lord. Meaning, a healthy awe and respect for God's holiness. We're never to lose that healthy fear of God. But here, Paul says there is another kind of fear that we leave behind forever when we come to Christ. We're no longer like slaves fearing a harsh master in our lives. We don't cower and hesitate before God like we're afraid he might turn against us and lash out at us. And if we are living like that, it is not the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a failure on our part to understand our new position. We are now adopted sons of God. The word son is important here. But before we get to that, let's think about the word adoption. In adoption, parents enter into a family relationship with a child who is not naturally descended from them. And that child receives all the rights and privileges of a natural child. That's the perfect description of what God does for us. We are not naturally his children. We are born cut off from him, the Bible says in sin and rebellion against him. In another place, Paul says, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but he has made us his children with all the rights and privileges of children. Megan and I know a Christian mom who would often say to her kids, I got to choose your dad, but I didn't get to choose you. That's true of our natural children. They arrive, 
and we're so thankful to God for them, and we get on with loving them and raising them. But we didn't choose them. But if you're a Christian, God the Father did choose you. He looked at you and said, this one will be my child. I don't have to have her or him, but I choose to make her my child. I choose to give him all the privileges of a child of God. That's pretty good. But actually, it's even better than that. I said the word son or sonship was important here. And there are two reasons why it's important. The first reason has to do with the cultural context of Paul's day. In the Roman world, when an adult had no heir, they would adopt a male to be their son and heir. So the word sonship tells us that as Christian men and women, we're not just adopted as children, but as heirs. We'll come back to that later. But our sonship becomes even more significant when we remember God the Father already has a son. He has a son who is naturally his son, who has been his son eternally. In John's Gospel, Jesus speaks to his father about the glory he had in his father's presence before the world began. God did not need children. He was not lonely. Father, Son, and Spirit were complete together before you and I ever came along. But out of sheer love, the Father adopted us. And it was not adoption to second-class membership of the family. It was adoption to sonship. Jim Packer helps us to grasp what this means. He said, God receives us as sons and loves us with the same steadfast affection with which he eternally loves his beloved only begotten. There are no distinctions in the divine family. We are all loved just as fully as Jesus is loved. When God decided to adopt, he didn't go in half-heartedly. He went all in. If you are in Christ, you are as loved as Christ. I know of one couple who early in their marriage thought that they weren't going to be able to have children themselves. And they adopted a son. But later they did have children of their own. And horribly, they turned all of their attention to those natural children. The adopted son was treated as if he was surplus to requirements. Now, I know that's not always the outcome in those kind of situations. Unfortunately, though, it does seem fairly common. But it is the opposite with God. He had the dearly loved natural son. And he went in search of brothers and sisters for that son. 
to share in the same affection he lavishes on that natural son. If you're a Christian, that is the reality of your situation. And Paul says in verse 15, By that spirit of sonship within us, we cry, Abba, Father. Paul is writing in Greek. Abba is an Aramaic word. Paul uses it and then he translates it. And our English Bibles do the same thing. But what's the significance of the word Abba? The significance is that's how Jesus addresses his father. In Mark's gospel, here's what we're told about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, just before his crucifixion. Mark says, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Earlier in Romans 8, Paul told us we have the Spirit of Christ in us. And that Spirit causes us to approach the Father exactly as Jesus approaches him. When God the Father adopted us, he made us full members of the family. And we cry out to the Father using the same name Jesus does. And we receive the same access to the Father that Jesus does. Jesus doesn't come to God with some reserved, formal approach. Here he is at the worst moment of his life, just crying, Father. And we have that same privileged access. And yet sometimes... In our concern to be reverent, we never really grasp this. Reverence and awe of God are appropriate. Of course they are. But we don't honor him by acting like he's a Victorian schoolmaster. One preacher says, there is a kind of reverence which is, in fact, irreverence. There is a way of putting God off at a distance which may look pious, but it is contrary to the will of God himself. The beauty of Christianity is that we are invited into a genuine relationship with our maker. You will not find that in other religions. Other religions will give you either a God who's impersonal Not really even a he or she, just a force. You can't cry Abba, Father, to a force. Or other religions give you the Victorian schoolmaster for a God. You can only relate to him with fear and uncertainty. Last week, I would suppose that many of you heard that Muslim lad who was interviewed on the BBC. He apparently was one of those who left the UK to go and fight in Syria. And when he was interviewed, if you heard that interview, did you hear how he spoke about his God? 
He said, I love the prophet. I love Muhammad. But it was clear that Allah was at a distance. There was no concept that he might have that kind of intimacy with Allah. And the Judaism of New Testament times was similar. Back in Exodus, God gave his personal name to Israel, Yahweh. But by New Testament times, when the scripture was read aloud in the synagogue, the reader wouldn't dare to read God's name aloud for fear of taking his name in vain. Instead, the reader in the synagogue would substitute the name Adonai, which means Lord. Even in Judaism, there was a distance. There was a barrier that always remained in place. But Christianity exploded that barrier. Christianity brought access for the weakest poorest believer, the believer who's homeless and penniless can call the maker of the universe Abba, Father. And it's not outrageous. It's appropriate. It's God's doing. The humblest believer is an adopted son of God with all the privilege and all the access of Jesus the Son. Has this truth sunk in for you? You can approach the Father just as Jesus approaches him, and you will be welcomed and heard. And if you feel hesitant about that, think of it this way. God the Father did not go to all that trouble. He did not pay such a high price for your adoption only to have you keep your distance. As if you're a slave and he's the dreaded master. That's an insult to the Father who has lovingly adopted us. One theologian says, Father is the Christian name for God. And we haven't grasped Christianity until we've grasped the truth of our adoption. Wouldn't we talk to God more if we grasped this? Wouldn't we be quicker to cast our cares on him? Your relationship with your human father might be good, bad, or indifferent. But let God define what true fatherhood is. His arms are open to his children. I pointed out that the word son or sonship was important in verse 15. It proves we've been adopted to the full rights of heirs. It also shows us we have the same access as the eternal son. But now in verse 16, Paul makes it very clear that both males and females are adopted to this high position. Notice that he moves here from the word son to the word children. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit 
that we are God's children. And Paul's point here is that the Spirit who leads us into holiness leads us also into greater understanding of our adoption. If you struggle to relate to your Father in heaven, if you're stuck in formality and ceremony before God, ask the Spirit to break the ice. There's no ice on God's side. Ask the Spirit to break it on your side. Ask him to make this truth come alive for you. Listen to the Spirit as he assures you your maker is your father. And your father adores his children. All his children. Don't put your trust in the strength of your own faith. Don't put your trust in your own sense of worthiness before God. Put your trust in what God tells you about your situation. He has chosen you. And on the cross, he paid the price to set you free and adopt you as his child. Your Father in heaven wants you as close as his eternal son. And there's more. As children of God, we don't simply have access, we have an inheritance. Verse 17 tells us, children of God are co-heirs with the Son. Look at verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We've seen that in Roman society, a childless father might adopt a male child to be his heir. God the Father already has an heir, Jesus. But he adopts us to share Jesus' inheritance. In the Old Testament, God referred to Israel as his firstborn son. And when he set up a human kingship in Israel, God referred to the king as his son. The point was, Abraham's descendants were heirs to a great inheritance. And here, Paul says to Christians from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds, you are heirs. You will inherit all that God promised to Abraham. So what is our inheritance? Well, back in chapter 4, Paul said Abraham's descendants were heirs of the world. That is an aspect of our inheritance Paul will deal with next week. But here, notice, he calls us heirs of God. Does that mean we are God's heirs? Or does it mean we will inherit God himself? I think it means both. We are God's heirs, and part of our inheritance is God himself. One of our songs says, I am his, and he is mine, cherished for eternity. That is the reality for us. Psalm 73 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
It's true that when we're adopted, all the Father's wealth becomes ours. But even greater than that, the Father himself becomes ours. He is our portion. Jim Packer is so helpful in helping us understand adoption, and he says on this, Throughout our life in the world, and to all eternity beyond, he will constantly be showing us, in one way or another, more and more of his love, and thereby increasing our love to him eternally. The prospect before the adopted sons of God is an eternity of love. As a child of God, you inherit God himself. And Paul says, you are a co-heir with your brother, Jesus Christ. That almost sounds sacrilegious. But it's true. It's right here in God's inspired word. The book of Hebrews tells us Jesus Christ is heir of all things. And by grace, that inheritance is shared with you and me. And notice also in verse 17, Christ's pathway to his inheritance also becomes our pathway. We are co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Jesus' road to glory led through the cross. Now, you and I will never die for the sins of the world like Jesus did. But as his brothers and sisters, we will be trained and refined by suffering. Suffering will prepare us and shape us for the glory ahead of us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus cried, Abba, Father, he went on to say, not what I will, but what you will. When God is our Father, then we have the same attitude as our brother Jesus. We know our Father loves us. And when the road he has marked out for us leads us through suffering, then we can say with our brother Jesus, Everything is possible for you, Father. Take this cup from me, please. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. We can say that because we know that our inheritance is secure. However difficult the road is, it will lead us to glory. The road our Father takes us down is the right road even when it's hard. We said last week, when we know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that knowledge changes the whole atmosphere of our lives. And isn't that equally true with our adoption? Isn't holiness more attractive when we know that we're adopted into a holy family. When we know Jesus, our brother, is holy, 
and our loving Father is holy, don't we want to be holy like them? I realize not all of us are Christians this morning. If you're not a Christian, I hope this is appealing to you. I hope you want this adoption we've been talking about. And the good news is God's family is still growing. Admit your sin. Put your faith in Jesus' death for your sin. And you'll also become an adopted child of God. In a moment, we're going to gather around this table. And as we do, we will remember the cost of our adoption. But before we come to the table, we're going to praise God for the truth of our adoption. We're going to sing Mystery of Mysteries. And then, Father God, I wonder.